The end of all things is at hand. Peter declares that in 1 Peter 4. And it's been 1970 years, 60 years since then for us to come to the point of not really believing that. And yet we see the evidences around us that while we understand the church age as being that final age of deliverance, of salvation for mankind, that uh, it is certainly coming to a dramatic close in our days. And so how ought we to live? When we looked at four aspects of living that were very directive, uh, that we ought to be in, in serious prayer, watchfulness, that we ought to be uh, working very much to love one another to the point of covering, that is causing, opening up avenues of repentance that we might cover a multitude of sins. That we be hospitable to one another cheerfully, extending all of our resources to the aid of others, loving our guests the stranger. And then we saw last week the need to be good stewards of God's grace, of ministering what God has gifted us, lest by neglect we be judged harshly for it. We might think, well, that's the conclusion of his concepts of what needs to be going on within the church um, because the end of all things is at hand, but we really haven't. There really isn't the end of his description of what needs to be going on if we're at the end times. Not only in general terms like the church age, but in specific terms of the very end of days for the church uh, period. But I think we come into verse 12 and following through the balance of this chapter, and really see additional themes of what shall we expect. We've seen four directives. Here's what we should be doing, and certainly we ought to be engaged in that. So now as we're doing that, as we are engaging in prayer, as we're engaging in loving one another, being hospitable to one another, ministering the gifts of God to one another, as we're doing that more and more, as you see the day approaching, that's a very powerful statement, we are to meet more often, the Bible says, as the day approaches, not less often. And it is a phenomenal thing to watch um, that, just this is a little side here, my introduction, uh, to watch the churches in my lifetime. Uh, back in the 40s and 50s, churches began meeting more often. In fact, back in the 20s even, it really began to, uh, what we know of as Sunday school didn't exist did you know that? There was many, many, many years that it didn't exist. Hundreds of years. There was no Sunday school, but churches saw the need, and Sunday school was really the, the outreach to children. It was, it was initiated as, and it was added in. And the idea that then, and the midweek meetings, and, and then we had a, a, another children's program midweek. All these things were growing, 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 and we get into the 60s and 70s, and there was the beginning of a transition. 
We started going the other direction. Churches started saying, oh, we're just overdoing it. People are stressed. Um, they need more time with their family. And we started meeting less and less. And that really took hold on churches in the 90s. Uh, and when we were coming in and, and in ministry, we started seeing churches, oh, just once a week is fine. One hour a week is fine. Uh, that's probably as much as you can tolerate or as much as you need. And we saw it diminish. Um, but I believe the, the last generation had it correctly when they recognized if we see the Lord's coming at hand, as we see it approaching, the Bible says we should be meeting more and more. And now, of course, in this last two years, we have seen churches almost completely abandon most of their Bible studies and Sunday school type of ministries, and we are down to a single uh, thing that you don't even have to get out of your jammies to attend. And we have denigrated worship, and this is one of the tactics of the evil one to uh, rob God of glory. And we're going to talk about that. But one of the things at the end times, we're going to should be involved in these things more and more as you see the day approaching, with the expectation that if this is the directive we need, then what's going to be happening in general terms, and this is going to be a theme you're going to pick up from me for several weeks, is that you're going to see the rest of the world going the other direction. That as they diminish, we should be going, wow, this is exactly what God's Word says, and then we should go turn away and go the other direction and say, well, if they're diminishing, we should be increasing. Because this is exactly what God's word describes as being going on at the end of days. And in fact, we are seeing that uh, extensively. In fact, right now, almost every Christian public seeing house that I have uh, read of in our country right now is in dire straits of going bankrupt and closing. Including our own regular Baptist press. Why? Because nobody needs Sunday school material, nobody needs vacation Bible school material, nobody's using it for the last two years. They have just, they went a few weeks, a few quarters without it, and now they pretty much just abandoned it. And now Christian publishing houses are going broke because of diminished demand for their materials. And that should concern us. That should, be dis that should wake us up and realize this is really, really bad, where we are going this direction. And we might congratulate ourselves for holding steady, but that's not what God's Word declares. It doesn't say, hold your ground. It says you should be all the more as you see the day approaching. We should be actually doing more and not just holding ground uh, and, and congratulating ourselves for that. And so the end of all things is at hand. How are we going to respond? And he's not done talking about that. Certainly our, the actions we should be engaged in, he has now concluded that. And now we're going to go into uh, several other elements about the end of all things at hand. One is going to be what will be our experience during this time, and what will be our purpose during this time are going to be the two major themes here. We're going to see some other ones in terms of, of ministering the gospel to others and things like that. 
but we're really going to focus it on those two. And so we come into First uh, Peter chapter four. Let's begin a reading, if you will, with me, in verse twelve. This is beloved. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of God, glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Wow, what a very powerful passage. And again, like many aspects of Peter, very succinct, very, very few words to communicate a very full message. And when you know Peter's background and you know the the teaching of Jesus in his life, the experiences of Peter in his life. You go through the book of Acts and you see God's working through and in Peter there. We can understand where these statements are derived from and their context in their past. And that brings an even fuller meaning to these principles that he's going to lay out for us. So we're going to begin where he begins, and that is to be braced for what your experience is going to be. We have now, we're at the end of all things, now here's what you should be doing. And we looked at those four key elements of what we should be doing as a church, and we should be doing them more and more and keep doing them, and persist in doing them, not let up in doing them. Now we come to our expectations. Not only future expectations in terms of of the reward of doing those things. We're going to talk about that, not so much today, though. Uh, but also our experience on this earth. What should your experience, what should you expect here? And, of course, this comes back to one of the major themes we've already studied in Peter, and that is the suffering of the saints. That that is to be and has been and is the experience of righteous people who are seeking to serve God faithfully. And I use that past, present, future concept because Peter does in this passage. He tells you that it is going to come, that it has happened, and that you are now experiencing. They're all wrapped up in these few verses. You can see the tenses changing and and, and being played here in verses 12 and 13. It says that the fire trial, which is to try you, that's your future. It's going to try you. It is coming. Uh, but then the strange thing is, when it's come, that don't think this has happened in the past to you. Uh, don't think it, once it's happened, look back and reflect upon it and say, well, that's weird. Why did that happen to me? Uh, don't worry about that. Uh, but we should rejoice to the extent that you partake, present tense, in the sufferings of Christ. And so for Peter... Uh, this was an ongoing thing. He didn't say that this was just going to be a moment, that this was just a particular period of the church 
age that it would be like this. It was experienced by the apostles in the first generation, and we can trace it through history all the way to our generation. Uh, what is unique about our generation is we have some very specific prophetic utterances for us in God's word to prepare us for something on a, on a full scale on the whole earth. All the other ones are regional, and we're going to talk about the distinction that makes for us, particularly in this age, uh, which changes our approach a little bit. Uh, not dramatically, but enough to, to be noteworthy. And so we come to this, and Peter's expectation is that this is going to be going on throughout the church age. As the church age progresses, we are drawing near and near to the end of all things, and therefore um, it is necessary that we do these four things, more, not less, but we also brace ourselves for what's coming and what has come already that we were asleep as it was happening and that we might know that there is going to be more to come. When we look at the history of persecution in church, um, we find these heroes of the faith, and they really are, they should be, and, and our, your ignorance of church history, if we don't know these people's names and what they endured all the way back to Polycarp, uh, and all the way forward uh, into, we often hear about the, the Inquisition, and we forget sometimes that the real sufferers of the Inquisition were Christians, true followers of Jesus Christ, who were tortured to death as quote-unquote heretics for denying papal authority, for denying all these things that were in, in that, that poisons that were introduced into Christianity and realizing, and while everyone says, oh, Christianity produced the Inquisition, I correct them very quickly. I says, no, the Inquisition was perpetrated against true Christianity. When we look at the history, we, we need to be educated to see what these people endured. When I see people make light of or devalue just having a copy of God's word in your language on your lap right now uh, and not being thankful for that. You're betraying something about your ignorance over the history of how this Bible got to you and how many lives were lost to preserve it, to translate it, to print it, to make sure the common person got access to it. Because for centuries, none of that was true. What you take for granted and just toss around and think nothing of, and we sit there and, and squabble over these things um, without any appreciation for how it got to us and what it cost the church to keep this in your in, in a language you could understand, uh, in your possession, and, uh, and just to preserve that. There's a reason those dark ages were the dark ages. It's because the word of God was kept from the people. It would not be translated in a language you could read. It would not be 
uh, you not have access to it. And again, the persecution was not from outside, not from the barbarians, but from the quote-unquote Christians who would, would imprison you and slay you for translating it, for possessing it, uh, and for distributing it. That's just one element of your Christian experience today that you enjoy, that if we don't understand its history and the great cost our scriptures were to others that we will devalue it. There, in fact, persecution is such a defining attribute of the followers of the truth that entire history books have written just by weaving those people through history. Uh, in fact, one of the Baptist history books that we, in Baptist history, we had to read that in college uh, and probably should be in every church library. It's called The Trail of Blood. How do you trace Baptist history? And their contention is from the New Testament forward, we follow through this little booklet called The Trail of Blood. There is a costliness when we talk about, here's our defining doctrines, we need to recognize that there, people died for those. Because they held to these doctrines of, of, of adult believers' baptism, um, people were drowned for that. Individual soul liberty. People were imprisoned for that, for just believing that you had a right to believe what you wanted without the state or the church dictating it to you. People died for that. We're imprisoned for that. We're beaten for that. We're tortured for that. Uh, for the priesthood of all believers, that all of you have the equal access. You don't have to confess your sins to me so that I can deal with them. That priesthood of the believers, and I'm, if you're wondering what I'm doing, I'm going B-A-P-T-I-S-T because this is the acrostic that I was trained in Baptist history. Every one of those attributes or uh, characteristics of the Baptist movement that we take for granted was costly. And so when we come to this uh, passage, it says, do not think it's strange. Do not think that this is an unusual experience. In fact, you should think it's strange if the opposite is true. Because history has proven throughout the church age that those who are genuine followers of the truth and committed to God's word paid the price over and over and over again. They did it joyfully. And you and I are the benefactors of their suffering, of their price that they paid. We have opportunities throughout the year we have three different opportunities to thank the servicemen that preserve the freedoms of our nation. And on those three days, lots of talk about their sacrifice and help and all of that. Uh, we have zero days during the year to think about ones who benefit us much more than any of the servicemen have ever done. And those that have brought us the tenets of Scripture preserved through history at the cost of their very lives. Zero days do we celebrate that. 
Do we recognize that? Do we acknowledge it? Do we take the time as a church to say this is church history month? To say this is the day that we want to look and we want to read <laughs> chapters like Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to get to Hebrews here shortly. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and go through, this is what it means to live by faith and to, to bring glory to God and then go through church history and say, look at all these people and what they brought us, what it cost us to have freedom to meet openly, to have God's word before us, to have these standards that we take for granted. What does it cost? And so don't think it's strange when there is an assault. In fact, it is quite the opposite. We should be deeply concerned if there is no attack on the church. Because that means that we're doing something very, very wrong. Now, in Peter's day and throughout most of church history and in many parts of the world, we see uh, persecution is usually a very violent thing. And that is true. That has, that has been the case all the way through. And we can say, well, how did the church survive? They survived because they endured that kind of violence and hatred of men with joy, rejoicing, and love for others as we're going to see later on. They, they endured that because of uh, they, the, the gospel actually didn't diminish. It exploded during those times because people saw you can endure this kind of abuse and be joyful, still be thankful, still cling to your beliefs. They must be strongly held beliefs. Now, why would I use that phrase? Because for a religious exemption today, you have to have strongly held beliefs. You know what strongly held belief is? I'll lose my job rather than change. I will lose my house rather than change. I'll lose my personal freedom rather than change. I'll lose my life rather than change. That's the strongly held belief that brought you Christianity. A Bible. The liberty to sit here. So don't think it's strange. And as the day, end of all things approaches, we should anticipate that it's going to get real worse and worse. Now, you have heard me teach in the past, and I'll continue teaching this, and we're going to explore it a lot today. I really need about three messages for today. Um, Violence is, is what we see. We recognize, well, those are martyrs. Those, those who have been in prison, who have been tortured, who have been, who have been slaughtered for Christ, and they are the ones who have endured persecution. And that kind of violent persecution, yes, it needs our prayer and our support, but it's always generated an a, a impact for the gospel. And it has brought many men to Christ. But we also know that there's another kind of persecution that we are warned about in the end times. And as we are drawing to the very close of this age, that we should anticipate that this agent of persecution is going to operate on a completely different focus. Instead of a violent attack upon you, it is going to be, as Daniel's word is, to wear you out. To just very subtly and gradually just diminish your spirituality till your spirituality is ineffectual. 
it is powerless. Because now you think all this stuff. And my dad, when I was growing up in my home, he called it religiosity. That's what we, we I heard that word almost monthly at least. Um, that we are just very religious, and, but we're not, have no, there's no power, there's no authority, there, there's no righteousness in it. And as you read through men throughout the ages and you read their writings from their, especially the old time preachers, I guess that's going to be me now. So <laughs> I guess I'm old enough to be an old time preacher. Uh, <laughs> see, I've been a young preacher for so long, much of my life. Now, um, they look and they say, well, from the beginning of my ministry to this, I've seen the diminishing of the church, not just in spirituality, but, but in impact upon my society. They, they, there's just a diminishing. And so they, after ministering for 40 years, they go, oh, we're in deep, deep trouble. And then the next guy ministers for his 40 years, says, oh, we are in super deep trouble. And then another guy ministers for another 40 years, and we're now 120 years along the way. And they're like, and, and these guys couldn't even recognize that as Christianity. We've gone through that multiple generations in this country. Why? Because we have a different tactic being employed against us, and that is this wearing us down. By simply, instead of attacking you forthrightly and in your face, it is that, that little drag. Just to take a little bit here and a little bit there, a little pinch there, something you don't really quite miss. It's like that little drip of a faucet somewhere or under the ground that you don't notice until it's too late because it doesn't draw on you all at once. And then at the very end, it'll burst. But for many, many years, it might just keep seeping out. And that's what the Bible declares in one particular place in the end times. There's still going to be violent persecution in other places, but in that one particular place and all those under its influence that it's going to be this wearing down of the saints. And the only way that we can really understand it is to step way away from it and refresh ourselves in some of the old spiritual ways. That's why, again, I love an understanding of church history. What did they think the disciplines of the Christian life were. Well, let's go back just a let's go back a hundred years, the 1920s. What do we call those? The Roaring Twenties. What you forget is that why was there prohibition? Do you know why there was prohibition? Do you know what the pro? How do you know what I'm talking about when I say what prohibition? Okay, about half of you. <laughs> prohibition was a time in this country where you could not make, buy, or sell alcohol anywhere in this country legally. And so the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms would go around and they destroyed distilleries. They Destroyed bars, they dumped beer, in the, beer ran in the streets, alcohol ran in the streets. And then we started having the speakeasies, which means that here's a place you can get it, and you would meet under the radar, you'd pay the cops off so you could have your alcohol. So you cannot legislate away sin. But I want you to understand why did our country get to a point where they collectively voted on prohibition? 
and it has the impact of what was happening in that period of time and the ministry of, of powerful men and powerful churches to preach the gospel in enormous evangelistic campaigns that didn't last a day, didn't last a week, lasted a month at a time. Where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people would attend night after night after night. Every night. And really, Billy Graham that you are familiar with was really at the tail end of that. We're talking about Billy Sunday and D.L. Moody and men like that that, that had the, that over a third, do you realize over a third of the population of our country heard Billy Sunday preach in person? One third of the population of a country heard one man preach in person. Not on the radio, not on television, in person attended his evangelistic meetings. We had a powerful impact. What's happened? Well, they tried to go back, and they said, this shouldn't be. These, these are the Christian virtues, and they tried to implement them on a nation with, with, through the legal means, and, it, and they were effective, and, and amazing things happened during Prohibition. No one has, ever wants to tell you about that. All of a sudden, it was a failure because they want it to be a failure. The fact is, it's a great success. Divorce dropped. Suicides dropped. Crime dropped. You might think, oh, that was the time of all the uh, mafias and all that, but that was not normal. That was Chicago, okay? Well, Chicago's still that way. <clears throat> and Albuquerque. We're right up there with them, I think, just about. And so when we look at the effect of that, yes, we have been worn down just from 100 years ago. 100 years ago, the church impacted this country to such a degree, we voted a law in to prohibit alcohol consumption nationwide. Think about that. Do you think the church would have that kind of effect today? Do you think the church itself would vote to have no alcohol in it? Just for itself. No. And so when we look at these things and we say, well, we have diminished our influence on our country, there's a reason your influence is diminished because your spiritual walk has diminished. We need to, we are like the frog in the kettle, right? That has just sat there and it's gotten warmer and warmer and warmer and we're cooked, and we don't even know it. We just sat there and taken it and gotten worse and worse and didn't realize that now I'm dead. The way to deliver the frog out of the kettle is to splash it into some cold water. And to do that, you need to get out of the milieu of your society, drop yourself maybe at 200 years ago and say, what was a Christian like 200 years ago? What were the expectations of the church 200 years ago, 300 years ago? I like 200 because it was kind of before country really became what it is today. Even a hundred years ago, what was the expectation of the church, of her people, of themselves? Because church covenants were imposed on churches by pastors. They were written by the people. We're going to put these covenants on us because we recognize that we need to be righteous in a godless world. 
We don't have a church covenant. And most churches don't today. And some churches that do, don't even know they do. You wouldn't know it. I remember as a child in my church that uh, about at least, I want to say twice a year, we would stand up and read the church covenant out loud. It was in our hymn book. They put it on the back back folder of the hymn book, read up, and it was a responsive thing. Here's how we're going to live. We're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. And you know what? Right now in my home, we pretty much violate almost every part of that covenant. You know what we were coveted? We would not play with playing cards. I say, oh, this is kind of silly stuff. Well, it was basically, you're not going to get participate in gambling. You're not going to go to movie theaters. You're not going to have alcohol. You're not going to have this. You're not gonna, and we commit, and that we are going to do these things. We are going to be this. We are going to attend faithfully. We are going to pray. We are going to be in our God's word. We're going to have family devotion. We're going to have all these things. And we would covenant together saying, this is how we see Christians should be living in a godless world that we are surrounded by. Just 100 years ago. I'm not 100 years old. 50 years ago. So the persecution that we're enduring is this wearing down and diminishing spirituality. And with diminishing spirituality comes diminishing effect. We have less effect on our society. We have less effect in ourselves of standing in the end times because we've already surrendered so much ground. that it's difficult to even conceive of making up most of it. And if you do, people think you're, you're Amish or something. You're smiling. because <laughs> But that's the attitude. You're just way out there. You don't know we can balance these things. That is the biggest lie of Satan. You can balance playing in the world and playing at Christ. You cannot serve them both, brethren. Because when you play with the world, you are offending your Savior. And so don't think it's strange. You should think it's strange that you aren't alert to the fact that we are this far gone as the community of Christ. We're going to talk more about this as we get into the whole idea of the judgment to come upon us uh, that he talks about in verse 17 that of what righteousness should be and that um, we should be unashamed of suffering, but we should be very ashamed of doing evil. But we have found it reversed. Now we find Christians not ashamed of doing evil, but are very ashamed of suffering. Because we have bought into the health wealth gospel that was uh, touted on televangelists in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and probably still. I don't, I don't watch TV, so I don't know if it, I assume it's still going on. Do not think it strange concerning fire trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In fact, it is quite the reverse. We have been under attack and we have been sleepwalking through it because it's been just little, little 
strains, little slights, little diminishing, and it's taken generations, and now we are so weakened that we have essentially no effect. My wife and I, when we visited the Philippines, uh, both kind of felt the same way, and others, Christians from America, well, it kind of feels like how church was in the 70s when we were young, when we were in our youth. It reminds us a lot of that. But then I saw what happened with the lockdown. Do you realize that if all those churches, and it has a huge impact on the Philippines, very much like the church had an impact back in the 50s, 60s, in their government, in their, in their society, the church has a very strong role there still. I shouldn't say still, two years ago. Very strong role. All they needed to do is ignore the government mandate, and if every church had stayed open and gone to church, the Philippine government couldn't have done anything about it. But they capitulated. And now their churches are largely empty. So when we look at the necessity of standing up and expecting, I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to suffer the loss of all things because all things are going to be destroyed anyway pretty soon. So that, and recognize that that is something that will bring God glory. And we're going to talk about glory in the weeks to come. That this is what God looks for. He doesn't look for you moving along. He looks for you to stand and to increase in our activity and to, and to be refreshed and to realize, what am I doing sitting in this pot being cooked to death one degree at a time? Now some think, and I have had these same thoughts and my family will tell you that I would have loved to have just run away. What happens when suffering comes? Well, let's run and find a place. Now, if you go through the book of Acts, um, you will find some interesting things. You will find Paul getting threatened for his life multiple times, and the saints grab him and say, get out of town. And they take him out, and they make him leave. But I want you to notice that he always leaves to go preach the gospel somewhere else. He doesn't leave that place to go hide somewhere and to preserve himself. And it's kind of interesting in my mind that the, the saints send him to the next town and they stay in that town and minister. So effectually that when he comes back through and visits those same towns that he was chased out of, there is a strong church in each of those towns still ministering. They stayed put and endured. The writer of the book of Hebrews, we know Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter with all these uh, examples of people who live by faith, and then, but we forget to attach Hebrews chapter 12 to the end of that. This is, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that is set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You guys talked a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not... Yet, 
resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Are we concerned enough about obeying God's word to such a degree that it doesn't matter anymore what it costs me in this world to be pleasing in God's sight and to have a more righteous life. That it just doesn't matter who I offend, what job I lose, what relationship is broken. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what injury occurs to me in my physical body. It doesn't matter anymore. I only want to endure and to run this race of faith to God's glory. How do we do that? Well, we begin by changing our thinking and understanding that, that suffering is that which brings God's glory because it means that you are the world's enemy. They view you as their enemy, which means if you are the enemy of the world and the world is the enemy of Christ, who are you with? Christ. That's who you're with. If they hated our, your Lord, they mistreated him, if they... If they practice this against him, and you are his follower, then they should hate you. They ought to practice those things against you. Not only acts of violence, but other types of persecution as well. Just shh, just shh. Don't talk about that stuff here. We avoid those things in our conversations because they just bring debate and, and fights. I will never be told that. Neither should you. These are the very essential conversations that must be had. They define who you are. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, these are the defining elements of who you are. And when someone says, shh, 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 don't talk about that, you're saying, don't be you. That's exactly what the world wants. They don't want you to be a Christian. They don't want you to be a follower of Christ. They don't want you to be that. They want you to be like them. And the church largely capitulates because we are not expecting suffering. We think that's strange. It's foreign. It's alien to us. It shouldn't be our experience when Peter says quite different, when the author of Hebrews says quite different, when, the, when we go through the book of Acts, we see quite different. But we see Paul running away from people trying to kill him, but they're being, he's being sent away. I think that's noteworthy. They sent him away. But he was sent out of Antioch, not because anyone was trying to kill him, to, be a, to preach the gospel to many places. And then God kept that happening. The other place where we see people scattered by persecution was also at the hands of a guy named Saul, Paul. Um, Saul, who persecuted the church, and the church was scattered except for the apostles throughout all Judea and Samaria. And wherever they went, they preached the gospel. What's going to happen if you go someplace else and preach the gospel? They're going to hate you there too. But church after church was established. In all those places that chased Paul out, Paul came back, revisited, but everywhere there was a church. Interesting, of the one place that didn't violently respond to him was, Aunt, was, was Athens, and as far as we know, Paul never planted a church in Athens. As famous as the Mars Hill sermon was, there was and there were some followers of that, it was just, oh, well, think about that. That's kind of an interesting idea. Um, but there was no sense of I need a savior in my sin. And there was no church really established by Paul in Athens. Oh, well, not like Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, 
Go all those and you go to these places there, they, they were there. But he suffered in those places. Paul was getting a little gun shy, and finally God says, just stay put, uh, don't worry. Um, uh, you're not going to suffer in this place for a little while because I have a lot of work I want to do in this town. Relax, preach. And while we can focus on that and say, well, we should just run away and hide from persecution, that's not what Paul did. He ran away and encountered it in other places. But what we should be focusing in on are the people who are left behind. Because that's who you are. You are the residents, not the traveling evangelist, not the church planter. You're the residents. And we are coming to a time where there is no place to go. And I say this knowing that right now there are, and you'll hear me talking, well, they moved to a free state because we, we are a prison state here. Um, <coughs> uh, they moved to a free state, you know, like Texas or Florida or some of those Dakotas, some of those free states. Why? Why are so many people moving from New Mexico? Even Christian families moving out of this area. Well, it's just too hard to live here. When we moved here from Rio Rancho, we had multiple people tell us, why would you take your young family down to the war zone? Because that's what Westgate was 30 years ago, 25 years ago. This is where the gangs were. They've kind of migrated. They got old, I think. They kind of migrated to the southeast, the international district, places like that. Um, why would you take your own family there? Well, I said, I'm a pastor. I've got to go where the sinners are. We've got to go where they need a, the light. They have to go into the darkness. Uh, that's what you're called to do. Um, and to recognize the, the necessity of that. We do not flee persecution for our own comforts. We flee it with a purpose. If we're going to leave, we're going to leave with a purpose, and that is that I'm probably going to get in trouble wherever I'm going next because I'm so radically different than the world. Because I've realized that I was in a pot and I jumped out, and now I'm back where I, at the temperature I'm supposed to be, and I'm serving Christ, and that will always precipitate the ire of the world against you, and that will be so much more. There is no place to hide anymore, really. We can imagine that for our own comforts uh, for a little season, you might get some relief, but the fact is that what the Bible describes as coming is coming on all men everywhere on the earth. And so, yes, I've spoken many times that my family almost laughs at me now. Well, he just wants to sell everything, move to Belize. Somewhere warm, somewhere where it's English, and somewhere where I have some liberty. Well, that's nowhere. Unless you want to go north to cold places like Sweden and Norway. Norway now joins Sweden saying we're not going to have any lockdowns. Did you read that this week? They, they opened their they opened their whole country up this week. Norway did, like Sweden. So I guess that's where you need to go, right? It's only temporary, brethren. The end of all things is at hand. 
Peter recognized that. He says, people, don't, don't try to hide and avoid it. Just when it occurs, walk in righteousness, walk in truth, bring glory to God, and expect it as the normal of the Christian life. We've heard a lot about a new normal in our country in the last two years. But the church hasn't talked about a, that this is really the norm for the whole church age. It just hasn't been our experience because we've been asleep in the pot. Being destroyed one degree at a time. But Peter tells us the end of all things at hand, the norm is, is that you are going to be in suffering. You're going to have a great fiery trial. Not just a trial, a fiery trial that you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that you're going to be reproached for the name of Christ, that you're going to be um, blasphemed, that people are going to be blasphemed, thinking they're blaspheming you, and they're really blaspheming Christ in you, towards you, that you're going to be uh, suffering, that you're going to have all of this being perpetrated against you. And the warning is, do not diminish your righteous walk before God. Do not diminish your stand Stand fast. Don't seek to just avoid the suffering for your own comforts and the security of your family. Because if that were the case, you would not have, in church history, if that was the case for people throughout church history, you would not have a Bible in your language on your lap today. If other men had the same spirit as we see today, I want to avoid the discomforts of standing as a light in the dark. I want to go somewhere where it's gray and I can kind of blend in a little bit. And to those, I say, well, that's, that's certainly easier. I don't know, that, but biblically, it's not better. Biblically, it's worse. We spent Friday night up at the Bahamas and it got cold. And we have no heat, really. And I have this little dinky heater, this big, this big, with a propane tank attached to it. And you light it. And it's like, is it on? I can't tell. <laughs> can't tell if it's on. And I have to put my hand in it. I, yep, it's getting warm. It must be on. And then we turn off the lights. Oh, yeah, it's obviously on. It's glowing red. But you couldn't see that glow with the light on. You see, Christians for their own comfort want to just go where there's other light. When God tells us, be a light in the dark. Which necessitates something. It means that you are going to have to live with a lot of darkness around you. And in that setting, your light will be more evident. And that's why the church has always grown during times of severe, violent persecution has always grown. Because people look at that and it's astonishing to see people willing to risk so much for a belief system. For a person named Jesus, they're willing to risk everything for uh, a few pages, a few pages of God's word. They're willing to risk imprisonment for 20 years. It's astonishing. But we would rather... Go somewhere where it's not quite so dark and hide in the 
grayness of some communities, the, the religiosity community where our light might still be shining, but it's not evident to anyone because we kind of just, everyone around us is quote-unquote Christian. So brother, I want to challenge you that wherever God places you, that you should anticipate that the end of all things is at hand and it's all going to get pretty bad everywhere. We can try to hide, we can try to run away, but if we're not running away for the purpose of being a light in another place, that we are diminishing our opportunities to serve God. We should anticipate, be prepared for, um, and in our attitudes, uh, be, be looking for, anticipating suffering at the hands of the world. This is the day of tribulation. And it comes from men who hate the light. And if we're not getting any of these reproaches, we're not getting any of this fiery trials, if we're not seeing any of this, then, then we need to look and say, have we succumbed to the wearing down of the saints? That we really don't look like a light at all anymore because our fire's gone out. A little propane tank doesn't last very long and then it goes out and that glow just goes and it's black again. Peter's going to tell us what the power of the gospel and the Christian walk is but he's going to call us and he's going to warn us against it. Are we going to commit our souls to Christ? Or are we going to simply subject ourselves to our, whatever brings us comfort and subject ourselves to running and avoiding persecution at every chance we can just so we can stroll through this life and think we can ease our way into heaven. I find no such thing in God's word. I would challenge you as the end of all things at hand is that we prepare and have an expectation and even a desire for suffering, not because we want to suffer, but because we want to walk in righteousness to God's glory and knowing that the world will hate that. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its power and its truth, for the, for the testimony of so many who have stood for you in communities that hated you, that live righteously and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. For their testimony, we pray that you might awaken us anew to recognize the end of all things is truly at hand. And we see the evidences of your word demonstrate around us, and we pray that we might bring you glory in these times. By setting a better standard, a higher walk, we might shine brighter and not dimly in these dark days. 
that we might do so with joy and expectation of what you can do through the power of righteousness among your people. We pray we might be strengthened by your spirit, reproved by your word, and encouraged by one another to be faithful to your coming. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.